Hey, Bill. This is a podcast of a conversation you had with Richard Ford in September of 2020 about his collection of short stories, Sorry for Your Trouble, stories you described in the conversation as big and full and rich. Yes, they are. It was the greatest thing. You remember September 2020? We're in the middle of the of the pandemic and no idea where it was going. It, it had seemed as if we were through it and then it suddenly got so much worse. And, and we had dreamed of like, uh, first of all, being in the library, talking Richard and I, and then we thought, oh, maybe we can do it out on the square outdoors. And then that even became too fraught. So next thing you know, we're on Zoom. It was great, though, because I got to read the book. And then yeah, just as I finished the last stories and thought over uh, all those characters, those complicated lives, I'm talking to Richard. You know, it was just really fun to have the immediacy of and, and how characters are so real in our hearts and heads and then talk to the guy who made them. He has so much expertise about various things. So I asked how he knows so much about whatever it was. And his answer is, oh, Bill, we're just good at making stuff up, aren't we? <laughs> so I enjoyed the conversation and um, I'm going to enjoy re-listening to it here on the podcast. And uh, also realizing that uh, I got my shots. So the world shifted once again. Exactly. And hopefully next time you come to the library, we'll actually be in there instead of on Zoom, which uh, seems more and more likely as every day passes. The one upside of the Zoom realities is that we get to see writers in conversation from their writing nooks, which I think as Richard's stories are so place-based was sort of interesting seeing him in one of his uh, habitats. So uh, there is there is a, an upside, but I really do look forward to being all together again at the library someday. Um, so thank you so much for your time and for having such a great conversation with Richard and we'll see you soon. See you soon. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us today for the Spotlight Lecture Series. I'm Rachel Harkness, and I'm the Programming Manager here at the library. Um, and I'm delighted to be hosting Richard Ford and Bill Rohrbach today at our Spotlight Lecture Series to talk about Richard's book, Sorry for Your Trouble, which was published last fall. So Richard Ford is joining us from East Booth Bay today. He's the author of eight novels, including The Sports Writer and Independence Day. He is the winner of the Prix Femina in France, the 2019 Library of Congress Prize for American Fiction, and the Princess of Astorias Award in Spain. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Canada. Sorry for Your Trouble is his eight-story collection. Others include the bestseller, Let Me Be Frank With You, Rock Springs, and Multitude of Sins. Bill Rohrbach's newest book is The Girl of the Lake, a collection of stories from Algonquin which was longlisted for the 2017 Story Prize and finalist for the Maine Literary Award in Fiction in 2017. Also from Algonquin are the novels The Remedy for Love, a finalist for the 2015 Kirkus Prize, and the best-selling Life Among Giants, which won a Maine Literary Award in 2012. And his next novel coming out, Lucky Turtle, which was delayed but now due out in 2021. His first book of stories, Big Bend, won the Flannery O'Connor Prize in 2000 and the title story, an O. Henry Award. He is joining us from Scarborough. Thanks to both of you for being here, and I'll let you Thank take you. it from here, Bill. 
Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, everyone, for turning up. It's so great to be at the, at a library uh, brown bag. What is this coffee, I guess? I don't know why you have events during nap time, but um, I, I'm doing my best. Um, uh, this is such a great... I, when Lewis Robinson was doing your job there for a minute, Rachel, while you were away, and uh, when he suggested this to me, I was so excited because... As a grad student in the mid-80s, um, two of the books that were informing all our discussions, I still have the old copies, uh, you know, Frank Bascom's first appearance in Sports Writer was, you know, the, on, the, uh, on the tip of everyone's tongue. And these stories in Rock Springs, I'm a big story person. I love reading them. I love making them. Um, I love trying to understand why they still capture us and why they come back in these kind of waves through the culture. And uh, Richard's one of the great practitioners and, uh, and reading the um, stories um, in Sorry for Your Trouble. I didn't realize it was eight collections of stories. I think I missed one. I gotta go find the. I think there aren't that many, unless I was asleep for a couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's only, there, there may be four or five. That's still a great gift to us readers. So this is the new one, Sorry for Your Trouble, which I love the title and I love it more. Every story, it, it made more and more sense. And yet it wasn't attached to any one story. It wasn't the title of any of the stories. So I thought I'd start asking, I mean, getting a title for a book is always an interesting proposition, but usually I, I open the table of contents. I find either the shortest story or the title story and I read that first, you know, so. Uh, these are all long stories, and there was no title story, so I was just at a loss. So I, I didn't get started for months trying to figure out <laughs> what, what the hell you were doing. No, I'm just um, I guess uh, it was a very good idea. So I think it's a great idea. So just tell me about the title just for a minute. As different from Rock Springs, uh, after I wrote Rock Springs, I, I really decided I wanted to write books of short stories that, that were unified in some way, and, and that I would uh, find a title which was distinct from from the whole book, but and yet included the whole book. Yeah. So, so that for me, and, and, and you know, and this is not for anybody else necessarily, um, to name the collection after one story, uh, sort of pointed a finger at that story, which basically said, well, this sucker better be good because it's holding out the rest of the book. So I thought, well, I'll just try to find a way to make the book be unified, as a, um, not as if it were a novel but as if it were a book of unified stories. And I, I find that when I do that, the stories become actually little soldiers that they are. They, they become a little more unified uh, when, I, when I have a kind of working premise such oh. as that title. That, that title was not the original title for the book. The original title was uh, Irish Channel, which is complex in a way because the Irish Channel is a part of New Orleans where I'm sort of nominally from. And uh, it's where a lot of Irish people came in, in early in this century, late last century, well, early 20th century, late 19th century. But nobody at HarperCollins could figure out what Irish Channel meant. That's right. So they, there was, as they say in the publishing world, there was pushback from marketing. <laughs> no, 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 normally I push back really hard when marketing pushes back. But in this instance, I thought, well, if I'm pushing back this early on in the process, that means that they're not gonna support this book. And I had an alternate title anyway. I always have a couple of alternate titles. And this title came from Frank McCourt, from Angela's Ashes, which is a book, if you haven't read it, I hope you will, um, 
a wonderful book, although a sad book. Um, people are constantly dying in Angela's Ashes, so they're getting terribly ill. And when people come to come to pay visits to the dead family or to the sick person, the sort of common, ordinary, conventional reply is, "Sorry for your trouble. Sorry for your trouble. Sorry for your trouble." But I, but I got it from Frank, really. Uh, that was another of the iconic books of my time, at, you know, as I was getting started as a writer, you know. It's a great book, and it, 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 it won the Pulitzer Prize, and it was, it was, I've been in Limerick a lot, and um, people in Limerick don't like that book because it's, it's from the 50s and from a time when Limerick was impoverished, and Frank grew up in, in impoverishment, and so it tells a very true story of what it was like to be poor, and uh, of a busted up family and the poor part of Limerick. And so he, he took a lot of grief, but unfortunately by then he was laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a very funny book, despite all the horror. Yeah. Like the, the kids burning the furniture in their apartment. <laughs> they warm through the winter while their dad was out someplace. Um, I, very, I love, and a lot of the, several of these stories uh, take place partly in Ireland or mention Ireland or have Irish uh, citizens in them or Irish accents that appear out of nowhere. It's just, uh, <laughs> I can see where that would confuse. Uh, if it was called Irish Channel, I didn't know about the uh, New Orleans connection. Yes. It would be, there would be a confusion for me as a reader there. Whereas, sorry for your trouble, I didn't need to know about uh, Frank McCourt. Uh, yes, right. I get that for every story. I found the place it made sense. You know? Yeah, it's a conventional line of condolence in, in Ireland. It is in Scotland too. Sorry for your trouble, uh, everyone. Uh, <laughs> so, well, that's so. Uh, so I'm re uh, reading. I was enjoying. Okay, the Irish part. The, there's a lot. There's some in New Orleans. There's uh, quite a bit in Maine, which I love. Yeah, uh, it's out west, of course. There's all your places. Yeah. Most of these stories, uh, they're, well, they're all rooted in place, but they're all rooted in multiple places. You know, yes. People come from somewhere and now they're somewhere else, or yes. they're to go somewhere, or they're they're visiting somewhere. Um, and the places, each one is is more is more important and real than the next in the in the story. It's like the with the they, the stories couldn't take place in any other four places. You know, it's quite. So but, I, but of course, you and I know that they could. You and I, being artificers in, by, by, by nature, know that we could have made that story that's, that's set in Seattle actually take place in Mexico City if we wanted to. We could make that happen. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Hope yeah. we make it better when we do that. If we make it better, it's worth doing. <laughs> well, I had an NFL player in one of my books, and I just... I, everyone's like, how did you know all that stuff? So I, I would just say, oh yeah, I used to, you know. <laughs> just leave it ellipsis and let them think whatever they want. Because the, the rest of the sentence would be, oh, I just got on Google, you know. And yeah. <laughs> you know, I, that's what I was thinking. It was, I had a line in my notebook the other day about the, the different ways in which women and men now in the early part of a relationship begin to relate. And, uh, my, my line in my notebook, it goes as well for women as it goes for men, that men, men no longer have charming, wonderful things that they can tell to women that they, that they couldn't ever know, but that this man tells them because there's nothing that can't be known anymore. I can't tell you what a solenoid is, for instance, because you could just go right to Google and find what a solenoid is. So I've lost that advantage. 
And you can get checked up on too. Yes, you can. <laughs> Especially if the woman's a mechanic, you know. Yeah, she very well might be. And she very well might be. Um, so uh, each of your people has some kind of job or they've done some. Uh, I, I just love, I, so these stories felt really big and full and rich. And I love how in, um, what's the name of the story? I wrote it down here. Um, oh, Second Language is the last story in the yes. collection. One of my favorites, they're all my favorite, but that was one of, that's one that just gripped me uh, uh, throughout. Um, and I found that as, as I started the book, I was having trouble getting, uh, the, the, I, the stories wouldn't admit me easily because I would come, I would arrive from Twitter or I'd arrive from my busy day and the stories asked me to slow down, slow down, yes. read this. So by the third story, um, and I don't read them all at once either, but it's like a consciousness starts to be, uh, you, you start to give me a consciousness that helps me understand. So I went back after I got the third story, woke me up to your pages and to my inattention. Uh, and then I took myself back to the first story and was deeply rewarded by Well, you just put your finger on why I'm not rich, Bill. Because, ah. <laughs> because, because if my stories won't admit you easily and you have to read three before you wake up, I think, well, hell, I, I need to be in another line of work. And that's, that's our times, too. And I know it. people yeah. like to say, well, stories are back because of this lack of attention. I go, no, that you still need the attention for even a short yeah. story, you know. So anyway. You so know, I'm, I'm dyslexic, and so I, I read very slowly. And, um, and, 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 I, and I like reading very slowly, and I think I become heir to all sorts of qualities in language that I wouldn't be heir to if, if I read more quickly. Um, and I also retain a lot. Um, so I suppose I, I write stories for somebody who is willing to read, and not, not, from, not just for myself at all, but for a reader, uh, someone who's willing to read the way I have to read which is to say that how many syllables a word has matters to me, whether it starts with the fricative or a glottal matters to me and all of those kinds of things. But it is, however, a recipe for, for poverty. Uh, well, um, uh, it's a blessed poverty, as <laughs> Rick McCourt would say. And, uh, yeah. uh, the, uh, well, by the time I got to the last, you know, second language, my focus was complete, you know, so that may have been part of why I love that story is um, uh, above all of them. But I think it also, and I love them all, but I, I got to keep saying that. Um, but there is, he's reading the, the guy, in it, his, uh, Jonathan, there's a couple, mm. Jonathan and Charlotte, and uh, 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 they've gotten together after the, the sudden death of his wife. More about sudden death in a minute, but, um, and uh, he's reading Portrait of a Lady. Yes. So um, I'm I'm reading along and I'm like I'm enjoying thinking about him reading Portrait of a Lady, in which he talks, you know, he thinks about briefly, and the stories are pretty interior. I like the way you go from her interior to his interior with without no, you know, there's no uh, fireworks to do that. It just works. But I just love this. She's deciding to to leave him, and it's super interior, and she's. She's like, marriage would change her, and that she didn't want. They've been married for a year and a half or something, a very sudden marriage. Jonathan was only 53. He would find someone to be deep with, 
or not. And in that way, as the lighthouse on Owl's head rose below them and the whitely shimmering sea with tiny sails upon it stretched eastward when there were green islands and what seemed to be a mountain, in that way, the matter of her marriage to Jonathan Bell was decided. And I was like, that's so Henry James. The other, <laughs> the other thing that was so Henry James is that the moment that got that going was he, they're sitting at dinner and he hears her sigh. That's all, it's just a sigh. Oh, that's all it was. And, he, yeah. and that's another Henry James moment, like that moment where um, one of his characters sees her partner with a new lover and just knows by the tilt of their heads that they're lovers, you know. But anyway, I just thought the side told him everything he needed to know. And they But you know, it's one of it's one of the things that you get to do when you write fiction of the sort that you do and the sort that that, that I do. We we get to imagine what causes what. I mean I mean in, in, in perfect truth, the tilt of a person's head does not actually tell you anything. But <laughs> but except if I say it does. And then if I say it does, and I put that saying into the intelligence of a character, then I can say that that tilt of the head made him believe something that he didn't know before. But that connection is, is one of the exciting things about literary fiction and what makes literary fiction interesting, which is to say uh, all of the foregone things that we know, all of the conventional things that we know are kind of set aside to a certain extent in, in behalf of what the writer can imagine to be true about what causes what, and you know, um, when you when you were asking, when you mentioned a few minutes ago about sudden deaths, uh, which there are a few in this book, um, every single one of them is fabulous. Yeah, but I but I I I've had a lot of sudden deaths in my life, and I um, and I was always, particularly when my father died, I was very aware that I that I didn't feel like I was acting the way I should be acting after my father died. I didn't think I was sad enough. I didn't think I was bereft enough. I didn't think I was, I don't know, torn up enough. And um, what I came to realize was that after my father died was that I was sad that he died, but because he died, he also freed me to do a bunch of things that I wasn't going to be able to do otherwise. And so I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious of conventional notions of grief, for instance, or I'm suspicious of conventional notions of happiness or of love or of penury or of anything. And, and so for, for me, that, that th those are big opportunities to assign new sets of consequences to human behavior and emotions that we think we know the consequences of. You have a character named Happy, who's the most unhappy person ever. <laughs> She's fantastic. And, um, and that's another, that's a sudden death where they're sitting at, 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 at uh, having, having a, mar he's having a martini and she just realized he's, he's, he's gone. She's fixing dinner and she, he's sitting at the desk and sitting at the table and thinking, talking to her, chattering away, chattering away. And he grows silent for a while and, then she realizes, oh, well, he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> yeah. right. It's not that it's funny. It's not meant to be funny, really. Well, well it is kind of funny. Well, I didn't laugh uh, reading it, but it's, I guess that's like life, too. You laugh. Re re uh, um, Richard, you just, Zoom just froze you, and I feared that you had died right in front of us. So. That's right, sudden death. Well, did, well, I see you're laughing now, so. Well, see, that worked. <laughs> you're still here. Um, 
Yeah. Um, well, I love the, I thought the sudden death, what they did, the function of the story is it leaves room for a story. It's like that, right. that moment the story gets going is free. Charity. And then what happened? And then what happened? You, you want to know someone dies. You want to know then what happened? Then what happened? And right. it's not what you would expect would happen in any no. cases. I used to have a teacher when I was in graduate school, James B. Hall, nice man. He believed and tried to make us believe that short stories weren't large enough intellectually, emotionally to contain a death, that only novels were large enough to contain a death, he thought. And because he thought that um, uh, the importance of a death is somehow consequent to or commensurate with the importance of the person's life who has died. And that short stories were ill-equipped to give you the whole range of a person's life who, if, who would have died in the story, but only, only novels can do that. But it's like all of those little chestnuts that you learn in graduate school, they, they, need, to be right. they need to be doubted. Right, and then when, when he, then he assigned the, uh, what, the illness of Ivan Illich, or what? what <laughs> I was gonna say there. <laughs> yeah. so I around that. I mean, as soon as, you, as soon as you pronounce one of those large dictums like that, you should feel a breeze coming from some window that's been cracked in your house. <laughs> it's so true. But then teaching, I hear myself saying stuff that, and I'll say some chestnut and then go, okay, but that's not true. You know? Yeah, it's not true, right? It's wrong. A guy told me that, you know. <laughs> uh, so, um, what, what, where, how do you, okay, well, how do you approach a story? I mean, I, your stories are so full, like in, almost any of them, actually any of them could be um, f filled out, it could be a novel, it seems to me. There's plenty of story there for a novel, and yet they wouldn't be the same thing as a novel. No. Very different. So, they only um, work the way they work. But I love the density of life that you get in, the interiority of the, the past, everyone's got a past, they've got a dog, they've got the, you know, there's a whole life there. They've got places, not just yep. places are, but places, all the places. They've got uh, dead parents, they've got, you know, ex-spouses, they've got, but it's all in a story. Get um, all that in, yeah. I think I, I'm natively, if I'm natively anything as a writer, I'm probably natively a novelist. And yeah, um, so I, I like those big old baggy things and uh, love them, in fact. And I, I probably never would have started writing stories at all if I, if I didn't find myself hanging around back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s with uh, Ray Carver and Toby Wolf and Ann Beatty and uh, Tim O'Brien and, and uh, Laurie Moore and all these people. And they, were, they were having the best, best time because they were writing their stories and they were getting published in the New Yorker and then they were going out and giving wonderful readings and making a lot of you know, friends and sometimes money and going to interesting places. And I thought, well, shit, I'm writing these novels and I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I, 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 nobody wants me to come, you know, to Princeton and read a part of a novel, at least they didn't then. Uh, so I started writing stories um, because of my pals who were having this wonderful life and writing these stories, which they made seem very easy. I mean, they weren't any easier than anybody else's stories to write, but Carver's stories looked like they just sort of fell out of his brain onto the page. Yeah. And uh, Anne's the same. Anne's a spectacular story writer. Um, story. And so I, I think probably when I started writing stories, my, my, main, my main challenge was to sort of quit being a novelist and start being a story writer. And so I, 
I probably brought to bear on writing stories some of the same values for, well, I don't want to say density, but fullness. Fullness is good, yeah. That I, that I, would, that I would bring to a, a novel. I mean, I mean my, my way of writing stories is, to, is the same way I write novels, only fewer of them, which is to say to collect a bunch of raw material Yes. And, and, and use the old, the old rule of Ruskin's, which is that composition is the arrangement of unequal things. And so I just take all these unequal things and I jam them all together and try to make them make sense. And um, the difference between stories and novels is, and you know this from writing both, novels are short and stories are long, and that's about it. That's right, that's exactly right. Um, novels are short and stories are long. That's true. Um, so. Uh, was was Rock Springs your first book of stories? Yes, it yeah. was. It yeah. was published in 1987. And and they're a very different style than than uh, what we've grown to. And sorry for your trouble. I mean, but every but, but everybody has all kinds of voices in her or his head. I mean, I mean, you just have to think about how you speak with a different vocabulary when you talk to your doctor or when you speak to your priest, or when you speak to, your, to the grocer, or when you speak to all of the different people that you speak to every day, you use different grammar, you use different diction. And that, those kinds of differences that we, that we practice when we speak to other people are the same kinds of differences that we can practice in writing stories. So none of us has really, as far as I'm concerned, one voice. We, all, we have lots of voices. And, I think, you know, we're, some of us are more chameleon than others, you know, like I yes. turn into who I'm talking to, which causes trouble, like talking to some guy from Brooklyn, he goes, you making fun of me? I'm like, well, no, well, I'm not the, making fun of you. Well, the girl, the girl of the Lake, though, is a very, very multi-voiced book of stories. I mean, oh, <clears throat> some, somebody told me once about my stories, they said, if I read a book of stories of yours and, and, and I can't tell who wrote it, and I always think, good. That's good. Good. I, I'm not. I'm not trying to write stories to a template. You know. Oh, that's right. And there's no template in these. There are the no. people you. You. Uh, yeah. I feel like I know I'm in a Richard Ford story th throughout, in a way, but only because of the great attention to those fricatives that you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. And et cetera. Foolish um, so how do you how do you get started with a story? I mean, are you a note taker? A place? Start with yeah. a place, start with a person. Start with what? Do you, where do you where do you start? You know, I, I think I start with. I I hope this will be an encouragement. It's not that I don't know the answer to that question. It's just that the answer to that question isn't one thing. That's right. You, you could you know to to make it be one thing, I would have to say, well, I I, I start with the notion that I want to write a story and I don't want to write a novel and I don't want to write a Sistina and I don't want to write a, a novella. I want to write a story. So I know what its basic arc will be, you know, 5,000 to 8,000 words maybe. Uh, and, but then, then I just go into my notebook and, and look in my notebook for things that, that say, this should be in a story. You should, you should put this in a story. And then if I collect enough of those things that I think should be in a story, given that I know I have time to write a story and perhaps not time to write a novel, then, then all you have to do is sort of exercise the right economy. When, when, when in a novel you would think to yourself, I'm going to write this sucker to the end of this page, you think to yourself, well, I'm not going to write this sucker to the end of this page. I'm going to make this paragraph a little tauter, a little, a little more concise, 
it's not going to have as many words in it. So its point will have to be made somewhat more uh, economically. And yeah. so, but, but it does start with the presumption that it's going to be this and not that. That's right. Do you have any doubt? It's never like this could be a novel or this could be a story. It's always never had that experience. Never, never had the experience of a of a story uh, becoming a novel. Uh, when I wrote Wildlife, I, I had the notion that it shouldn't be too long because uh, I just felt that's all I had the all I had the chops for, and so it became a short novel of about 150 pages which I think, I mean, I happen to think that the great American novel is the great American short novel. Right? That's, that's my belief. But so I was trying to write a, a novel like So Long, See You Tomorrow, which is one of the great short novels in American literature. So, so Lewis's students just went, oh, good. Short novels, the great American novel. So it gets them off the hook? Gets them off the hook. <laughs> I haven't been able to perfect that, by the way. I've only written one that's really short. No, I can't do it. I, I write long stories, and a, so yeah. I made a project of trying to make really short ones recently. That was interesting. It was like, you know, it, trying to write poems. I'm just somehow it's not natural to. Me. Did you did you like the stories that you wrote when you wrote the short short ones? Um, several of them, and then several not so much. Uh, I couldn't do it. I, and then the reason that the ones I didn't like didn't work very well is because I'd start pushing into the big. Yeah big consciousness right that's not interesting if you're about to shut it off you know right i've never liked sudden stories it was a there was about 20 years ago was sort of a an enthusiasm in the in the small magazine world for sudden stories i i i i would read them and i would think huh why, still, why why is that anything it's still happening right tell me more i mean you know, i think that that one of the great things about long stories is the amount of language that they treat you to. I mean, you're not writing a story so you can get out of it. That's right. You're writing and you're reading a story, actually, so you can stay in it. And in order to get somebody to stay in a story, you want to make it felicitous and you want to make it full of interesting language. You want to make it about important things and keep keep you in, not be constantly saying, where can I get out of here? Where's, where's the door? And with, with sudden stories, I thought they were basically trying to get me out before I even got in. Yeah. And I think that's a function in some ways of uh, the teaching culture, because even for me as a teacher, it was a lot easier to get a four page story than to have to read a 75 page story. So I, it's a blessing. I, I kind of encouraged it. You know, I, <laughs> and I think there's now they've got whole journals of uh, six word stories and stuff. Yeah. Um, good. I won't be reading those journals. And it probably won't be my favorite, but maybe we're just old farts. But that's a you know that's our prerogative. No, um, not maybe. I am. No, not maybe. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm. Uh, yeah. Okay. We'll stop. We'll stop right there. And then. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay. How about memoir? I. I. Uh, I, I how, how different was that for you? I just. I. I bought this some time ago, and I just uh, pulled it out because I realized I had it and hadn't gotten it so. Uh, it's uh, it get that recognizable Richard Ford, uh, the the beautiful care of the sentences, the music of them. But there's something quite different about the uh, uh, the feel of it. There's a warmth that just uh, uh, because it doesn't have to go past. I mean, it's because the voice and the character are the same. I guess is uh, 
It's a great title too, Between Them, meaning between them, because they right. had like real tight, like uh, Vonnegut calls the carass, right? That tight yep. relationship that the kid's trying to insert himself into, but also right. a, a child between the parents. Uh, right. A child. Um, Anyway, I just wanted to point this out to people who might not realize that you have this beautiful memoir. It's just well, it's a memoir of, of, of my parents, um, um, who I loved uh, intensely, intensely, and who loved me in, in, intensely. And and it, it, what you said about it—that it's that it's warm in a way. That, that warmth, I think, is a, is attuned to how I felt about them. And uh, you know, it, it also goes to the difference between writing a memoir, which is which is factual, at least as I conceive it, and a piece of fiction which is which is fabricated and imaginative. Uh, whenever in a, whenever in a, in a sentence, of a, in a memoir, you come to a moment when you're going to write a clause, and that we're always asked to do that because you come to the end of your sentence and you have a clause to write, and in a in a piece of fiction you can write anything that that you feel is opposite. But in a memoir, you, you you have to write something and then ask yourself when you write it, yes, but is that true? Not just is it effective, not just is it, you know, not will it, does it make my hair stand on, my, my hair stand on the back of my neck? No, it has to be, it has to be the truth. It has to be factual. And I think that as regards my parents, I, I, when I came to that moment to write that clause, whatever it was, I loved them. And so what I wrote had to be had to be attuned to the fact that I loved them and that they loved me, and uh, that was always the real reason for writing the, the two essays to begin with. Yeah, with all their complications. And yeah, all the and they weren't that complicated, frankly. My 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 parents, I mean, my parents were regular human beings who have complicated inner lives, as do we all. But in the main, they were they were people who who didn't have irony. Who didn't have sarcasm? Um, who didn't talk in double entendres? Who who simply, when they said something, that's what they thought they meant. So yeah. made it made growing up to be actually very nice. Everybody was sincere, even if they were sincerely angry at you, which in my case was quite often because I was a bad boy. So, despite being loved, despite yeah yeah, despite being loved, that's exactly right. I like the. I like the that thought and that's a that's the thought that is the engine of the book in a way you know? yes well it's like Char charlotte in second language the last story of this of uh, sorry for your trouble is insist and insist on not being complicated and not being part of a complicated marriage and her new quick husband insists on going deep and uh but they, but they just like it. They like being together. They don't cause any trouble for each other. But there's just that day when it's over. I, I love that. But um, Charlotte has an inner life. She just doesn't have the inner life that he wants her to have. I mean, she has <laughs> she has her complications, and but they're just not complications she wants to bring to the core of of their marriage. I mean, um, I mean, I don't know why I was writing about that. It just seemed just seemed to me to be what was in my brain at the time about how. People are constantly, particularly in cliched terms, trying to, you know, let another person inside yourself, all that kind of malarkey. Uh, 
um, when actually a lot of people are really happy not to have that done to them at all or to have, do that to someone else. They, they, they like you, they love you, they adore you, but they, they don't want you in their brain all the time. And, and then after they split up, she, she a little gets allowed into her yeah. more complicated. Now there's room for him to come in. Anyway, I, I, another, another great death is her, her mother's death. Gosh, there's so many good ones in the book. I don't want to focus on just the one story. Are you interested in reading a, a little bit from any? any? I, I, I can if I don't have to read too long because I think it's probably stressful for people hearing someone. Okay. I, mean, I, I think I read you just the beginning of, of uh, Displaced. It's not, it's not so typical of the, of the book but it's because um, it's in the first person. Um, but most of these stories are not in the first person. They're in the third, which was my reason for wanting to write these stories as I did. I, I, I realized at my late age that I didn't think I knew how to write in the third person very well. And, um, and I was looking around at, at my heroes who wrote in the third person extremely well, yes. Jim Salter and Updike and um, Ian Beatty and uh, Alice, my God. So I thought, no, you have to take about 10 years out of your life and you're going to have to learn to write in the third person properly, which is to say what they call the close third. Um, um, and yeah. so I, I did, I think I did do that. That was kind of my sort of my inner journey in, in writing, in writing this book. I wanted to learn to write in the third person to teach myself how to do it. But this story, this place is, is only in the first, which, which well, a, a monkey can, a monkey can do. It's it's a it's killer how how you got the third person. And well, I worked I worked really hard at it. I because I, I really couldn't. I, it's like learning how to it's learning how to bend a note on the harmonica. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't get to the point where I could make the third person imitate the first. I was constantly feeling like when I was writing in the third person that I was at arm's length from from everybody, and then I was reading these wonderful stories of Alice's and. Alice just inhabits the third person in a way that I, that it's just beyond imagination. Free and direct style. Free and direct style, just like what James, James says, James Wood says. That's a great book, by the way, for anybody who's listening, James Wood's book, um, How Fiction Works. And um, he's got a wonderful chapter on free and direct discourse. And, um, and that is the lead in to learning how to write in the third person, which nobody when I was young ever taught me. They just thought, well, you do that. But I, I didn't do that. People drifted into it via James Joyce and stuff. But you, there's older models that I'm hearing in you, too, which is like, like Elizabeth Bowen. and uh, Yes. Uh, Big time. Hearing uh, The House in Paris. The House in Paris is one of the, one of the great novels ever. Ever. Okay. Yeah. Well, back to your reading, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think All that's right. about the third person. It's the most crucial understanding for a writer now to develop. And you, I mean, I, I don't believe at all that you didn't have it before because you did. But well, well, I could do it. I could do it. But I remember one time Tom Jenks, a guy who used to edit my stories at the New Yorker, and then became a kind of a freelance fiction teacher out in um, out in San Francisco. We we we. Ultimately, as often happens with editors, we ended up not getting along very well and um, sort of natural course. But I, he, says, he said one time, and I read it, he said, until you can write in the third person, you're not really fully a writer. Of course, that's a teacher telling you this. He couldn't do it in the Kuhn's age, you know. But, yeah. um, um, but I thought, well, it was stuck in the back of my brain 
which was, yeah, well, well, can you do that? Whether you think that's horseshit or not, can, can you do that? And I thought, well, not really well enough for a long time, but I, I, I don't know. You know, you get to be old and you can still learn stuff. You can, you can, you can still use your great heroes to teach you things. You're saying you can, you're still growing. That's brilliant. Uh, yeah, you better, you better be. Why, why are you keeping on, keeping on doing this? Just, right. Otherwise, you should just be watching Netflix. Um, which is a, a great way to learn storytelling, too. Yeah, it is. Just to turn off the sound and watch the images go by. As, as we all know, as screenwriters, you and I, you know, nobody really needs what we do. We're just a diversion on to the, to the images. Yeah, yeah, to the beautiful actors. All right, I'm going, let's right, hear. This is Displaced. Your voices. When your father dies and you are only 16, many things change. School life changes. You are now the boy whose father is missing. People feel sorry for you, but they also devalue you, even resent you for what you're not sure. The air around you is different. Once that air contained you fully, but now an opening's cut, which feels frightening, yet not so frightening. And there is your mother and her loss to fill, at least to step into while you manage those very sensations, fear and others, opportunity. And always there is the fact of your father, whom you love or loved, and whose life has quickly become only about its end, much of the rest quickly fading. So you are alone in a way that is so many-sided. There is not a word for it. Attempts to find the word leave you confused, since that confusion is not altogether unwanted or unliked. Try to find the word. That's the beginning of Displaced. I love hearing it in your human voice as well as the voice on the page, which... Read it in a duck voice if you'd like me to. Can we do the duck voice now? <laughs> what about performing? Do you, do you like... Uh, I mean, you can't do it now. I find I'm missing it. Do you like... Uh, uh, doing readings, doing being the public uh, Richard Ford, or would you rather hide out, or what, what's your? It's a it's a it's a mixed it's a mixed blessing, but it is a blessing. I think it's a blessing to be able to do it because you get to meet readers, and and you and then that's and that's where what I do and what readers do who happen not to be writers that that's that's where we meet. We're we're all readers, and so. To, to go and meet readers in bookstores or in libraries as now um, is, is a great privilege. I mean, um, I mean, most of the great literature that I've read in my life and would write if I could have at their core the insistence that we are more alike than we are unalike. And so to meet readers who are not like me, and I've, I've never spent a lot of time living where I grew up after I was 18, so I I'm constantly in the presence of people and cultures and societies that I think nominally aren't like me. And yet I can still write things using my imagination that make me feel that I'm part of what they're about and maybe even make them feel the same. So I like that. I like that aspect of it. The, 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 the part that, that is a little bit unpleasing is, is that I can probably, because I'm a pretty good reader, I can probably make a story that's not very good sound better than it is. Ah. So, um, and, and that's, that's kind of, in, in a way, irresistible when you're on a stage and people are quiet and they're listening. What you want to say to yourself is, 
well, I want to make this story really ring, you know. Well, hell, it better ring when somebody's reading it silently and lying in bed at night, whether they've got me to read it to them or not. You want it to be a different thing, not the only thing. Right. Yeah, it's, it is different. And I don't, there's something about the difference that makes it seem slightly, feel slightly queasy about it. Because I know I won't, you know, it's, a, it's another thing. I remember Bharati Mukherjee's husband one time said in my hearing. Clark Blade? Yes, Clark said, Clark said, well, you want to hear Richard read this story because it'll never seem as good to you again. I've, I've never forgotten that. Never, I've never That's forgotten kind of mean, that. Clark. That was kind of mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what the heck? I like those kind of, those kind of uh, honest, uh, uh, probably said with a smile, but then you carry it forward for years. It's like Obviously, I do. I wear it on my, on my shoulder like a chevron. <laughs> this, is, this is why I don't want to read. <laughs> About a Zoom world. I mean, you're teaching, right? Uh, yeah, I'm teaching at Columbia. I just have been for... Quite a while, yeah. You're your alma mater. I am of the MFA program. I think you came uh, as a special guest when I was there. Yes, I did. I did. I remembered something. You did, indeed. And you talked about a writer, I just mentioned her, Elizabeth Bowen. I yes. So um, my story, um, Princesa, is... Uh, based on Contessa by Elizabeth Bowen. It's like an homage. Only oh, to reverse the genders. I put the woman in power instead of the, the tennis playing boys. Um, and that such was a great, it's such a great story too, because, because at, the, at the end of that story, the, the girl just goes off with another guy and, and the, the, the Hollywood girl, the movie, you know, she wasn't Hollywood, she was Spanish. But um, this guy has thought so much that he loved her. And, so much that she was taking an interest in him and that there was going to be a future for them. And then suddenly that just kind of just goes away. It was quite, was quite wonderful. Because he fucked it up too. But, um, right. Um, so I just realized that was directly from just, just this moment that's a mo you know, nothing that, there's a quick mention of a writer, so I followed up on it or read her and thought about it for many years. And then somehow a story, I just realized that talking to you right now, that it was, yeah. you said that we should read Elizabeth Bowen. So. Oh yeah, the, again, uh, yeah. Um, the last September in the House in Paris, those are just exquisite, exquisite books. And a good story writer herself as well too. She was a great friend of Eudora's. And um, they, Eudora actually, this is, this is how I know about Elizabeth Bowen, because I was a great friend of Eudora's, Eudora Welty, and, um, and they, they were very close lady friends um, in the 50s and 40s, yeah. Well, we've all learned so much from Eudora from, you know, studying those stories, but oh. also what the amazing book of advice, right? What, oh, my God. Uh, what do, what was the context of your are you from Jackson? Where did you grow up? Is that, was that just the character? I grew up two blocks away from her. Yeah, that's right. Two blocks away from Eudora, and and in the latter part of her life, by which I mean the last say ten years of her life, um, I was her literary executor. Um, you oh, interesting. I was, although there wasn't much to do. You, 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 she <laughs> she was she was one of the funniest human beings God ever made and um, just mirthful, just deeply mirthful. She saw humor everywhere. And um, when, she, when I was finally her literary editor, I, literary executor, I said to her, I said, no, 
Now, now, now listen, you, you tell me if there's anything that you do or don't want. She, she said, well, she said, I hate to be pulling strings from the other side, she said. <laughs> she said, but I said, well, tell me though, Eudora. I said, tell me if there's something that, you know, anything. She said, well, she said, I don't want there to be a biography of me. She said, I, of all the things I don't want, I don't want a biography to be written about me. I said, well, all right. I said, I, uh, I'll see that there isn't one. And about two weeks later, a, a woman called me up and she said, you, Eudora has just commissioned me to write her biography and I'd like to interview you. And I thought, well, Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> Suzanne Mars. And it's quite a wonderful biography too, of Eudora. Yeah. I better look at that too. It is, it's good, it's good. Well, here we are uh, coming to the last 10 minutes of our, uh, of our talk here at the library. Uh, Rachel, did, did you have any questions? We, did. we got a few questions, yeah. I'll, I'll just ask them one at a time. Um, from Evan to Richard, I've heard you were a student of the great novelist in the, of the American West, Oakley Hall. What did his teaching and work mean to you as a young writer? Has he been an influence? He was a great influence on me. Uh, Oakley Hall from San Diego and uh, from Berkeley. And uh, he was my, really my first writing teacher uh, and was a great novelist in the sort of Wallace Stegner uh, vein of the, of the American West. He wrote also mysteries. Um, he, he tried his best. I think he failed. If you read it in my books, you will see that he failed. He tried his best to make me a plot-oriented writer because he was very much a guy who liked plots. And, um, I, I tried, and to the extent that my novels hold together at all, uh, structurally, plottedly, is probably because of, of Oakley, who was a lovely, dear, decent man. Um, I think the thing he taught most, taught me most, and I think he probably taught everybody who was his student, he taught me how to behave. He taught, he, he taught me how to uh, not envy other writers. He taught me to be happy when people do well even if I'm not doing well at the time. He taught me a certain kind of ferocity, um, which he had, absolutely he had. He, he, he taught me how to respect my colleagues, even if sometimes I've not always done as well as I should. Um, <laughs> but I've tried, and, he, and, I, and I see it as a virtue. It's a virtue. Thank you, Evan. And here's another one from Laura, um, who is from Booth Bay as well, but now lives in Massachusetts. Uh, thanks, Bill and Richard, she says. Richard, do you spend time at Ocean Point, and does the particular landscape of the Booth Bay Peninsula affect your story building? Well, I, spend a, I do spend time at Ocean Point because I, I, I go down there and walk with my wife a, a lot, and I also ride my bicycle from here down there because there's a lot of wonderful hills to go over. I like to ride up and down hills. Um, but um, I, I don't go places, Laura, because of how they will inspire me. I, I think I have to sort of, sort of like Emerson says, I have to bring my giant with me wherever I go. I have to, have to sort of bring my own inspiration with me. So I love living in Booth Bay. My wife and I thought about selling our house this year and decided we're gonna go out of here feet first now. And so uh, it affords me and has always afforded me a wonderful place to work, a wonderful place to write, to be quiet, to be alone if I need to be. Uh, and for the same, the same for Christina, uh, she writes books as well about city planning. And so um, it's been a you know spectacular place for us to live and so spectacular that our habit, which is at a certain point to get itchy and move, has been finally cured, I believe. 
We, we miss you, Laura. Come back. All right, just a couple more, I think. Um, this one's from Carl. He says, uh, could Richard talk some more about the Ruskin quote, composition is the arrangement of unequal things? Well, that comes from modern painters, uh, from Ruskin's book about, about painting. And, um, and, and all, all it means is that when, you, that when you compose something, which is to say when you make something be a, an integrated whole, that uh, for Ruskin at least, and it might, not, it might not be true for you, Carl, but it is true for me. It is, it, is, it is the putting together of things that have not been put together before. And so and where, where the, so to say, creative writing part comes in is, is where I, I can write these ligatures, I can write these, these, these logics in language, which cause one thing to then seem to be related to or a part of another thing. And, and the, the, the beauty of it is, is that this, I don't think, extends completely out to the end of the end of logic, there is, a, there is a degree to which the more disparate things are, once you join them, the more torque they have, the more torque your joining intelligence makes. And so if, if I, I'm always looking for things that don't fit together, which I can then write a sentence which makes fit together, and the diff more different they are, the more power I believe resides in the joining. I love that. I, I, I love thinking about what artists have to, a visual artist have to, to tell us as a writer. Yes. Ruskin's particularly wonderful. I gotta read that again. That's been a long time. Um, anything else, Rachel? Yeah, we, I had a couple more. Uh, so this one is from Steve Richard. Have you ever thought about writing a novel on Frank Bascom pre-sports writer time? A prequel. A prequel. Yeah, yes, I have, as a matter of fact, thought about it. And then I thought I couldn't do it. I just, I, I, you know, you, the spheres speak to you in a way. I mean, I'm writing a Frank Bascom novel now. You are? I'm 270 pages into it. And, um, and, and Bill, will, Bill will, understand this, will, will understand this very well. I mean, just because you can think of something really interesting to write doesn't mean you can write it. And, and I, I can't tell you what that little marker is, that little signal is in material that you have at your fingertips that makes you able to deal with it or not deal with it. But I, I think one of the things that um, writers learn as they get mature, they, they, they get a little bit more adept at what they can do and what they can't, which is, of course, narrowing. I mean, I, you know, Barry Hanna never did that, for instance, I, I don't think. But, but for me, I, I, I get a sense of the material. If there's a, it's got a kind of suppleness to it. It's got a kind of pliability to it. So that I could think to myself, gee, I, what I, I need to do is write a novel when Frank Baskin was 25. Or, but, what, but so I just think to myself, well, I, I can say it, but I know I can't do it. But one of the wonderful advantages is writing in the first person with present tense verbs. It's just you can get all that stuff in there anyway if you want to. Yeah, um, because you know, present tense verbs can accommodate past tense verbs. So, so how old is Frank now? Uh, in the uh, seventy-five. Seems to be seventy-five. Just. I quick... wish I was seventy-five. I know those are the good old. Days. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got a few, a few. Uh, we got quite a few writers in the in the audience here. I wondered if you had any. Uh, uh, thoughts for how to keep going during uh, these rugged times. 
which may seem more rugged to some than others, but. Well, everybody's life is different, you know, and mo mo most advice is only good for yourself. But Donald Hall, who was my teacher at Michigan, I had, I am blessed with wonderful teachers, E.L. Doctorow, uh, Galway Connell, Donald Hall. Um, but Donald used to say to me when I was writing the first novel I ever wrote back in 1973, 74, he said, your work will save you. And what, what he meant by that was um, not just get your work done, but go to, go to your work, go, go to your room, go to your table. Um, and because, because that's what's, what's waiting for you there is yours. What's waiting for you there is, is, is what you deem to be important and is in a way, although it may be defective, it may not be perfect, it's in a way unimpeachable and it's yours. And so that, that, that's what I would say gets, has always got me through lean times or, or, or hard times, um, which is to think that my work will save me because it is, is in my work, given how I feel about it, which is that I'm trying to do the most important thing in the world I can possibly do. When I, when I can go to my desk and, and try to do that, certain kinds of things just are more tolerable. Um, that's a great place to end. Uh, I want to thank you and thank everyone. Oh, gee, thank you. Thank the library. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Lewis, for dreaming this up. And yeah. And support the library, you guys, just because we can't go there now. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. It's waiting there. It's waiting there for us. Thank you, Richard. And um, thanks to both of you for being here today. It was a really lovely conversation, and we really appreciate it. I your loved time. it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Thank you. It was great to see you. Great to see everybody. And I'll see you around. <laughs>